It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. My goodness, that's a bit tricky at the moment, isn't it? Um, And so, on this episode of the podcast, uh, we decided to skip the sort of daily grind of Brexit because, frankly, anything we recorded would be out of date within minutes, never mind hours or days. But we took a step back and spoke to an expert in a particular area instead. My guest was Simon Collins of Shetland Fisherman. Fishing has been a big issue in the Brexit discussions and so Simon was good enough to come along and explain it all to us, explain why it's been such a big issue. And we were joined from the UK to Changing Europe by a new wonk, a new expert, a man called Dr Christopher Huggins. He is the uh, UK to Changing Europe's fishing expert and so he came along uh, and joined us. Always nice to have a new expert on the podcast adds to the stable. Hopefully he will come back and join us soon. Anyway, uh, enough of me. Let's get on and talk about what has Brexit got to do with the price of fish. Here we go. We're taking off your your fisherman's hat, as it were. You're not, to be clear, he's not actually wearing a fisherman's hat. How does Brexit look from Shetland? We're a long way from Westminster where we're closer to Bergen than we are to Aberdeen, even, let alone mm. Edinburgh. And we keep pointing out we're closer to Iceland than Brussels, which has a certain topicality about it. <laughs> um, yeah, 22,000 people in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Although Shetlanders, I guess, like many islanders, often feel the need to belong more than maybe mm. other bits of Britain. I mean, when the Scottish referendum on independence came around last time, Shetland was one of the few areas of Scotland that voted, or one of the the biggest, I should say, not the, one of the few areas. No, it was, one of the biggest votes was, to stay it was within the UK. Huge vote to remain as well. Actually. Uh, to, to remain, it wasn't remain in those days. It was yes and no Just at that exactly. referendum, wasn't it? But yes, um, yes, you're right. It I was, think it was the second largest majority to stay within inside the UK. Yeah. So there, it is, but it's also different as well. So there's a strong thing, the need to belong to something bigger like the UK. So there's a strong UK identity at the same time as a very Nordic identity, which is not the same as Scottish or Gaelic. There's no Gaelic language. It's not mm. kilts and swirling bagpipes. It's much more Nordic. But does it seem? Does Brexit seem very distant? No. Or perhaps because of the whole fishing issue, it seems very close, in fact. It, it seems very close because of the fishing. Um, a stat we, we bandy about often, because it's true, is that of the fish landings, um, when you look at fish landings, there are more fish, that's fin fish, we're talking about shellfish, which are pretty uniform mm-hmm. around the UK. When fish, we're talking about fish that are landed and brought into port, there are more fish landed in Shetland every year than in England, Wales and Northern Ireland combined. So Shut fishing up. is what? very, very big. What? <laughs> More fish are landed fish. are landed into Shetland every year than in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland combined. We're right in the middle of where all the fish are. Okay. Now, not all of it is landed to Shetland. A lot of it is landed into Peterhead, which has even more landings than we do. Okay. So that's where the that's where the UK's fish are, and Shetland's right in the middle of them. Right. That's why Brexit really, really resonates there. Why fishing? Why has fishing become such an issue in the Brexit debate? Yeah, which is a really good question because you often see the figure banded about that fishing is a relatively small part of the overall economy. So I think last time I checked, 0.06% of UK GVA 
um, you know, which is small. Um, but I think the fact it is high profile, the fact we are sat here today talking about it, the fact you see it in the news sort of points out that you can never reduce these questions to a pure case of numbers and economics. It does have political force. Um, I think one of the things we've just mentioned is, is a sense of belonging and identity. I think that's really important and it's particularly important in a place like Scotland, for example. Um, so fishing is part of the Scottish identity. A good example of this is um, England puts Winston Churchill on a five-pound note. Mm. Uh, there's mackerel on the back of a Scottish five-pound <laughs> note. So it's, it's, a, it's an important part of cultural identity. Um, and in certain areas as well, even though we think as the UK as a whole it's relatively small, there are certain areas and certain communities where it's the dominant industry. Mm. It's the dominant thing that goes on, and not just the fishing industry. There will be several other sort of industries around the fishing industry that depend on mm. um, yeah. economic activity generated by that. So it's, it, I, I think it's, it's part of this community identity um, aspect, which you should never sort of you should never easily dismiss. I mean, the follow-on from that, we'll come back to some points on that, but the follow-on, and you mentioned it a bit, Christopher, is, is why Scottish fishermen? Because it does feel like Scottish fishermen have... If fishermen, if fishing has, hasn't dominated the Brexit debate, but perhaps punched above their weight, it feels like Scottish fishermen have punched above the, with their, their weight within the fishing voice, if you like. It has very much had a Scottish accent. Um, is that simply because, as you said earlier, most of the fish are... I was going to say in Scotland, near Scotland. They're not in Scotland until they get caught, and then they are. <laughs> I think it's not just that. Mm. Um, I mean, as Christopher said, I mean that there are communities that probably more fisheries-dependent communities, if you like, in Scotland than there are in England or Wales, yeah. Northern Ireland. Places, in other words, if you didn't have fishing, you really have nothing else. They're, they're remote enough that there's nothing else that you mm. could do. Unlike the south coast of England, for example, you could readily imagine people doing something else. But I think also what has really worked. If I can put back my hat on as a, as a you know, trying to get the best political outcome for our guys in Scotland, it's just the the 2017 election, the way it hung Parliament in the first place and delivered power into a, the balance of power into well, because the balance of power lies with any group you like. Mm -hmm. But Scotland's particularly sensitive in this equation. It's particularly important for the Conservatives to to rate to, to get a hold back in Scotland. They wanted to build on that. Tory MPs, rightly or wrongly, there were several of them. Certainly for some of them, it's definitely right. They owed their breakthrough on the northeast, for example, to fishing mm, as this yeah. totemic thing that took them where the SNP government is letting people down. Now, holding on to those few votes has given them or given us a very, very powerful voice in what's happened because certainly at the beginning of the process and even now, coalitions are changing all the time, as we know, with this Brexit debate. But part of Theresa May's essential component of the things she had to put together had to be the Scottish Tory MPs. She has to bring them. A feeling that if she didn't, and these Scottish MPs, because of letting the feels of let, that they let down the Scottish fishing industry, if these Scottish Tories disappeared again and were seen to have sold out the fishing industry again, it's a hostage to fortune to the SNP and the Tories would never get back in Scotland. I, I, I think there's a real risk that it's being used for wider political purposes as well. So I think the risk that the fear of the industry is this idea of fishing sellout, um, mm -hmm. which is, is the phrase that's often used. And, and you can see this also, you can see this sort of represented in many ways. So I think conservative politicians who did benefit from being elected in many fishing mm -hmm. communities in Scotland, um, some of the sort of things that they sort of committed to say, I will stand for this may well come 
back to bite them. So I think between the sort of politicians and everyone based down the road here in Westminster, compared to people in fishing communities, there's sort of been a lack of dialogue in some ways. And it's all very good and well if you're a politician to say, um, no fishing sellout, we will do this. Um, But there's a sort of expectations thing here as well, which means that when you ultimately have to compromise, as it's looking like you're going to have to do, um, you're going to upset an awful lot of people in the process of doing that. So is fishing a a sort of microcosm of broader Brexit issues, or is it just part of the broader Brexit issue in the sense that people haven't been honest about those compromises, about what's involved in Brexit? I think think to say it's a microcosm of broader Brexit debates would be correct. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there clearly is a sort of expectations thing. Um, There's clearly a sort of lack, from my perspective anyway, of a a lack of honesty between politicians being honest to say um, this, these are what the trade-offs are um, and it means you might benefit here but you've got to trade off here or alternatively you could benefit on this side but you'd have to trade off here so there's, there's, there's not been a sort of upfront honesty about what the trade-offs um, have been I think that's the case in fisheries policy and obviously that's the case in the wider Brexit debate Democracy is rubbish basically because you don't get elected if you say oh it's complicated anybody who goes oh it's complicated well, they, I think they, I'm going to might have to compromise a bit once I actually get into power <laughs> not voting for him or her am I? I think, I think <laughs> in the fishing industry the guys who goes to sea are, are aware yeah. very much aware I think if politicians were honest like that they would get more support yeah. rather than less to be honest the fishing industry the, the, I'm talking about the, the guys going to sea they, they are not at all um, unrealistic about what might mm. happen and the possibility to be given away they desperately obviously do not want to be sold down the river again and will do their best to prevent that happening but n- nobody's under any illusions here nobody I mean there's long memories in this industry of what has happened in the past mm. and I, I don't know and, and, and you know these are these are people who spend a lot of time thinking and <laughs> Lonely hours at the wheelhouse, and so on. There's un- the people under no illusions. They they don't really trust politicians. You talk about people that go to sea. Do you go to sea? Yeah, it's all to say I don't have a fishing background. It was actually for an ironic reason that I was brought into the industry to actually beef up its ability to lobby effectively in Europe. Well, there's the there's the I suppose another point of view just about why fishing has become such an issue. Um, there is a team of you guys that come down from Scotland to Westminster regularly. Yes. Um, the argument would be the Scottish fishing industry has tons of money, has hired. <laughs> people like you who are really good at lobbying and have just done a really good job of making the connections of doing the lobbying. Is that part of this? Is that part I'll, of it? I'll happily accept it. Yeah. If people say I'm doing a good job, that's great, which is we take compliments. <laughs> we don't get very many, to be honest. So that would be great. But I think the reason but we've been effective... the flip side is, of that is that fishing doesn't really matter. It's just yeah. you've done a really good lobbying job. Well, it matters greatly to the communities we come from. Yeah. Um, if, I mean, if fishing goes wrong, to put it in a nutshell, if something goes wrong... Even, you know, fish stocks, even apart from Brexit or CFP, community, the common fisheries policy, and even if policy goes wrong or whatever goes wrong, basically all my neighbours go bankrupt and I'm left with an unsellable house and an unrepayable mortgage. So <laughs> it's very, very immediate. I mean, my neighbours are, are, you know, are fishermen. And you really feel in somewhere like Shetland, as small as that, which is dependent on fishing, you do see the families around you and you do feel a sense of responsibility to get this right and do what you can. Um, you've mentioned CFP, the common fisheries policy. I'll, I'll leave it for either of you or both of you. Can you explain the common fisheries policy to an idiot like me in very few sentences and small words? I'll, I'll have a go and then Christopher can fill in, the, <laughs> fill in my gaps here. The common fisheries policy comes from the fact that the European Union has, okay, be careful of this, this is a treaty, exclusive competence for basically managing fisheries. Yeah. And that means for everything from 12 miles out to the EU territorial limit. 
So this is an EU thing. It's run by the Commission, in effect. There's some notional oversight by the European Parliament. It's the EU that sets the rules yeah. for fishing, basically. Just, just on that though, the EU, of course, is subject to uh, oversight by national leaders. So if the EU, if uh-huh. the EU sets rules that the Scots don't like, that's because this is, the British government isn't making the case for Scottish fishing at this Brussels, isn't right? Part, part of the issue. So it part is. of the issue is a lot of those decisions take place behind closed doors. So there's an annual meeting every year to decide how you're going to divvy up things like quota. Um, And one of the issues is a lack of transparency about how that goes in, because every country's got its interests, every country wants to argue its place. The UK's doing that, France is doing that, all these countries are doing that. And what happens is you go into this meeting, decisions are sort of made behind these closed doors, and you're not quite sure how those decisions have come Especially, to. Christopher, as, as you know, that, that a lot of the people around the table at those meetings don't have a fishing industry. They nonetheless have a vote in the overall oh, makeup yes. of a deal, of a council yeah. deal. But the feeling then from you, Simon, would be that the British have not perhaps made as good a case as they could have done in years, over the years. Well, you, you could, but I mean, British, I mean, it's, it's, it's these days... Um, since the latest round of European treaties, is uh, the things that Britain doesn't have a veto on anything that happens in the common fisheries policy. This mm. is what's called qualified majority voting. Mm. Where the UK, if it stands there and says, "I don't want this," too bad, it can be overruled. That's part of it. Part of it is there's a limited room for manoeuvre because the shares of quota, for example, for every type of fish, are set in stone, ineffectively, mm. in a way that's very disadvantageous, as it turns out, for the UK, and we can't change that. Is that fair, Christopher, from a, a academic, you know, obviously Simon's got a point yeah, to prove, I, you know, that's fair enough. I'm not saying he's wrong on that basis, but obviously uh, you're the academic. Is that is that true? Is that, I think there's an added right? element to this as well, because a lot of the decisions that take place in council are actually done on the basis of a sort of informal consensus. So rather than going to a formal qualified majority vote, there's an informal consensus here. This is partly why there are questions over transparency, because you're not quite sure who's how these decisions are coming to. The other issue is, is in that sort of informal consensus decision-making, often you might be making a decision because it might be currying you favour on a different area Mm. of policy or in something else. So it might be uh, the UK has decided it wants to sacrifice quota in some areas because it can get a policy win on different areas of the fisheries package or something else. So I, I, I think what the issue says, it says EU policymaking is incredibly complex. A lot of it is subject to informal interactions between government ministers at that level. And I think part of the issue is not only the perception the UK gets a bad deal, but that there's a lack of um, information and transparency about what exactly has gone on um, in some of these things. So you see all sorts of different groups criticising the CFP for that reason. The industry often doesn't like quota allocation or it doesn't like mm. rules which it says you know aren't practically workable out at sea. Um, there might be environmental NGOs, for example, who are unsatisfied with overall total catch limits that are set, which they, they would argue... Um, go into things like overfishing and they would say well basically every country's sort of given itself 10% extra um, in order to keep people happy so this lack of transparency in the decision making is one of the key problems I think. Right here we go give, I'll give you the, the idiot's take on it then so is it perhaps fair to and I, I'm using very broad brush strokes here but the governments of the last 
40 years, if you like, have gone to Brussels and gone, well, fishing's only worth 0.06% of the, pop, of the, the economy. The, the city is making kajillions of pounds, for example. I need to get my way on the city being allowed to keep run wild. So I'll just say, I'll, you know, let the Spanish have a few more fish. It's not a big deal. There's not that many votes in the northeast of Scotland or Cornwall anyway. So, you know, this is what I'll do. And then Brexit comes along. I, I, I don't know if that quid pro quo works to the same extent in how fisheries decisions are done at the moment. But I think if you're looking at something like what the future relationship with the UK is going to be like, you've already seen those signals come from countries like Spain um, and France, for example, that mm. said, well, look, you want to talk future relationship um, fisheries is going to have to be part of that discussion um, we don't necessarily know how it's going to go but we want that to feature as part of the broader discussion that goes on and so the Shetland Fishermen Association um, how can I put this uh, are worried uh, and say right we need to get lobbying we need to get lobbyists who speak lots of different languages and get them in London and make sure our voice is heard because there is going to be a temptation for the government to to let fishing slip. So that's the yes. thinking. And it's not just the Shetland Fishermen's no, Association. No. Lots of different associations yes. are doing this um, across the UK. Um, and, and I think they're having some success, I think, in trying to inform the debate. Whatever comes out of Brexit, the fishing industry broadly seems keen... Uh, it's a sea of opportunity, it as, as of you opportunity. like to like to say. Yeah, we do. Um, it is, although it's it's not saying it has no fear of a no deal Brexit. Uh, um, some parts of it have no fear because they'll be pretty much unaffected by yeah. no deal. There, there are big slices of it that don't export to the EU in any case, or very very little. Um, some parts of it do export to the EU, but get round it. Um, other parts, no, they would struggle. Uh, some of the the shellfish fishermen, small boats. We have all of that kind of stuff in Shetland. We have the very yeah. biggest, the very smallest, so we'd see it all. Um, you know, single single mm. crew operations are very difficult to cope with. How do you kind of cope with this bureaucracy? How am I going to do all this? So there are genuine fears. And the biggest thing we've been trying to push all the way through, in line with talk about the great opportunities out there, is let's, for goodness sake, if we can, okay, we may be cherry picking, if we can get the frictionless trade as well, that was really what we'd really like as well. We'd like to have the whole lot. If you're asking, you want the key and eat it. Exactly. Well, don't we all? We can't have it. That's where. You, well, <laughs> we wait and see because that's where you start from. You don't start from saying what you're going to give up. So, so it depends on which fisherman you talk to. Yeah. But oh, I think okay. overall, if you look, if I'm taking it, I take a step back and looking at all my members of all different sizes. Overall, the size of the prize is potentially so enormous that I think most fishermen, not all, most fishermen would be prepared to take some upheaval for a few months in order to get the next 10, 20 years of what they want. And they look across to Norway, they look across to Faroe, look across to Iceland, they're saying those regimes, they benefit everybody inshore, offshore, big, small. And that's what you want to get to. I, 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 I think the only caveat I'd add to that is, uh, the point was already made anyway, but I think the only caveat I'd add to that is that it's, it's really tempting to think the fishing industry as a whole is 100% pro-Bexit, let's, you know, gun-ho, let's get out and, you know, things will be great. And, 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 and I think while that might have been true at a certain point, you've seen more nuance come into the debate now. So you, the shell fishing sector is extremely worried about the prospect of a no-deal Brexit because no one in the UK eats shellfish. Um, there's a market abroad which is happy to pay premium well, prices. Why do we eat shellfish? What, what, what's shellfish? Crabs and that. We don't is that eat, shellfish? That we certainly shellfish? don't eat the when best did, of all the nephrops. We when don't did, eat the when did you last things. see crab on a fish counter in a supermarket? I don't know because I don't really pay that much attention to the fish counter. I can't get my children to eat fish. But, but, so fish there and you chips. Go. 
uh, and tuna at the tin. That's all they'll eat. I don't know. My, my children have some that, sort of but that fish problem. And the, the best scallops in the world, I yeah. would say definitely from Shetland. You won't find them in British supermarkets. You'll find Argentinian scallops. you find all sorts, but not British. The people who appreciate British fish are, are Spanish, French, Italians, <laughs> who, are, who know a good product, a good thing to eat when they see it. The Brits, we don't yet. Yeah. This That's is, because the best fish is fish and chips, right? <laughs> Are you actually but, going to come on this podcast this, and deny that the best fish is fish and chips? No, I don't deny it. But if everyone it's made knows with local, that. If it's made with local, with local fish, you, you bet it is. Yeah, yeah. But I think this highlights one of the one of the key issues, which is you know the British don't have a particularly adventurous palate. So I think it's like four four species of fish dominate. One of those is salmon, which you mostly farm, mm. right? And then you've got cod haddock and tuna from tins essentially oh, okay. and um so part, part of the issue is as you say it's a it's a quality product it's recognized as a quality product and there are buyers elsewhere who are happy to pay for a quality product people in the uk i don't know they've been running eat more british fish campaigns eat more local fish campaigns since i've been a kid in the it United yeah, they, it's, they it's a bit like if you imagine if you imagine james that the scott the scotch whiskey industry you have this kind of Blendy nonsenses, and it's not the case. Ooh, but just imagine, whoa. just imagine it's a, it's if you a, had like blendy... a trade war between the whiskey. No, 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 you're no, 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 no. Off blendy nonsenses. <laughs> well, uh, well, as I would say, this is going to be good. Nice We've got to get whiskey. the man from the Scotch Whiskey Association on the next episode, and he will talk trash talk. He will, he will. Scottish fish. <laughs> but I was, I was trying to make a parallel, I was using an example which isn't a real, a real world <laughs> example. I hasten to add, if you were to imagine a situation where the Scotch whisk, the Scotch whiskey whiskey industry mm. exported all its excellent malts elsewhere, yeah. and the Brits only. We were only were contented with the blandest of yeah. blends. It's kind of the same situation in, in fish. The, the Brits are not, they, they don't go for the premium product. Yeah. It is keenly sought elsewhere, but not in Britain. And that hasn't changed or anything as a result of Brexit, I don't think. I don't know, it sounds like the fishing industry has the same issue as everybody else and basically needs a deal. The, the fishing industry is diverse. I think that's the main mm-hmm. that's the main point to to make. So you know there are plenty in the fishing industry who are pro Brexit, and you know if you're fishing quota species where you you feel you've been getting a bad deal from the EU and you'd like to go out and catch more, or you think um, various EU rules around um, all sorts of things like the landing obligation, for example, are you know, a, a detriment to your business, then the opportunity to change those rules to your benefit is something that you'd welcome. But there are others in the fishing industry who rely more on trade, for example, mm. um, with the EU. So, so I think the main point is there's a diversity of opinion within the industry. There's, I would say, on the whole, most of the industry is probably pro-Brexit. But there are also some who are pro-Brexit, but with caveats along the lines of, well, we've got to have frictionless trade. There are others, for example, who are pro-Brexit, who are pro-Brexit, saying actually trade isn't an issue for us. And then, you know, there are a few who are, you know, quite happy to remain because it does their business model well, that they're not subject to quotas. So if you most shellfish, for example, isn't subject to EU quotas, and you rely on frictionless trade because your market mm. is in different countries. So I think the main point to make is there's a diversity of opinion, not only as to what Brexit should look like, what the outcome should look like, but um, on the question of Brexit itself. Basically what you're saying is there's lots of different sorts of Brexit. Um, you know, people could be pro-Brexit, but that can mean all sorts of different things. You know, Brexit means so many different things to different people. It's just in, really, in fishing, really it, it, complicated. It, it is very complicated, but strangely, for, complicated though it is for fishing, mm. it's probably the least complicated bit in a sense because the fishing industry is really the, the, the central thing. Is, is the same for everybody. We want to be outside the common fisheries policy. 
Okay. That's what the fishing industry wants. Now, you can imagine a range of Brexit outcomes, very complicated, all these different things mm. we've heard about, Canada plus Norway, whatever all these things are, customs mm. union, everything else. Any of those outcomes is acceptable to fishing industry as long as the bit that we leave the CFP, the common fisheries policy, if that bit's fine, there's a whole range of, of other outcomes which would be acceptable or could be accommodated. You've talked of the, the prize uh, and you've talked of fishermen wanting to be out of the, the common fishery, fisheries policy. Um, what is the prize? What is? Give me your best case scenario. Essentially, British fishermen could just go and catch loads of fish. Is that basically what you're after? No, it's not. No, it's not that. There's, there's three things, really. Um, one is, yes, I mean, the most productive part of EU waters, as far as we're concerned, is in, in, around Scotland, around the UK. Mm. That's where, you know, we catch only about 40% of the of the fish that are allowed, that one is allowed to catch. Mm. Only 40% of it comes into UK vessels within our own waters and what will become our own waters. The rest goes to the EU. Under Brexit or after Brexit, when we have control of that sea area and control who comes into it, we have a very powerful lever to say, look, we're not going to go and bust quotas. We're not going to bust the overall amount of catch that can be taken from the sea. That would be suicidal. Mm. It wouldn't just be a shot in the for to be a shot in the head mm -hmm. for our industry. We, we need to be sustainable, obviously. Mm -hmm. But we're in a very powerful position to be able to lever fairer shares of the quota that's there. So if we have most of the cod in our waters, take an example, we should have most of the quota and we'll use access, we'll prevent other fleets coming in legally, perfectly legally, uh, unless they surrender up some of that quota. Here we go, you're talking about cod war, aren't you? Nope. How are you going to stop the, fleet, the other fleets coming in? There's plenty, there's, there's, there's <laughs> We, we at the moment we have to stop other fleets coming in, except the other fleets are Norwegian and Faroese and Icelandic or anybody else. So the measures are there. We are responsible already for a protection of our seas. Yeah, we have to do more. We think these days with technology, drones. What are the drones going to do? You can all you have to do. It sounds excited. And the drones going to no, like no, no. shoot French fishermen out. No, no, no. Sea. All you have to do is what the Norwegians do. The Norwegians have a, a small population, a huge long coastline. Yeah. All you have to do is find one that's doing something they shouldn't do. Yeah. A foreign fishing vessel and confiscate the gear, an exemplary, an enormous uh, fine, and that's a very powerful deterrent effect. So that's one thing we want. We yeah. want fairer quotas, and that's all we can say. No other country would give away so much natural resource to others voluntarily. And we're just saying, to, if you say to, to France or Spain or anything else, think of a natural resource, whether it's grapes or cheese or anything else, you don't give most of it away to someone else, neither should we. We don't give away our oil or gas, for example. It's not. We shouldn't mm. do the same for fish. The second thing is we want... Um, sensible rules, it's rules that we can invent here that are suitable to our fishery. Third thing, we want to negotiate on our own behalf. What we found in, the, in Europe is because most of the fish is in our bit, basically, as far as Northern Europe is mm. concerned. The Commission goes out and negotiates with Norway, with Faroe, with Iceland, yeah. on behalf of us. And it's been very willing to give away bits to them, and that has impacted us because we've got the fish, if that makes sense. The concessions that the, the Commission has made yeah. international deals on fisheries have come at the expense largely of Scotland. I would suggest it would be fair to say Brexit makes a cod war or a macro war ever more likely. I, yes. I I'm not saying it is likely, but I, more likely. I think what it highlights And if you is, say yes to that, then my next question is, how likely? I, I think what Brexit will do is it will put more emphasis on the need for the UK to um, engage in international negotiation with with its neighbouring coastal states. So part of the issue will be is around enforcement, um, as has been said. 
But because a lot of the stuff goes on the high seas where you're far from anyone, you sort of have to rely on good relations with your neighbours. Um, and, and, and one of the misconceptions, I guess, there is in popular discourse is that the UK can go it alone in fisheries policy once it leaves. It, 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 it won't be able to. In fact, if you wanted to go, if, if you wanted not to interact with your international neighbours on fisheries, Brexit's probably a bad idea. It's Brexit Family Fortunes, and here is your host, James Miller. Because the latest Brexit policy panel is not out yet, it's coming out next week because, again, things keep changing. Um, We've got some special um, UK Changing Europe facts for you to try and uh, predict the correct proportion. Probably going to be the most boring yet because you should really both get these exactly right. Um, How much of the fish we catch... Do we export? <laughs> about two thirds of it. I, I, I'm guessing. I would say about seventy percent. This is to exports in total, not just to the EU. Still going for those figures? A bit higher than eighty percent. Ninety percent. Apparently, we export almost ninety percent of the fish we catch, mostly salmon, mackerel, and herring. Of which more than seventy. More you than don't seven, catch most more of the salmon, than, though. That's this is, oh, this we can get that back down again. Uh, most <laughs> salmon's all farmed and. and they're still going to be caught, aren't they? They've got to be brought. No, they're, they're, they're not caught. Be brought in the they don't just walk out of the sea themselves, do they're they? Not, they're, they're not caught. If you're in the agriculture industry, you refer to killed. Oh really? Rather nasty, yeah. Well, what are they caught and then killed or killed no, they're, they're caught? Killed. They, they, they refer themselves that we you, to harvest the salmon. You, you, they refer to it as killing. Wow! Like they're brutal the salmon fishermen. Yeah, wow. it's, it's it's farmed. You have these big sort of pens well, yes. off the coast. But you've still got to get them out of the sea. You've got to catch them, them somewhere. And... Really? Yeah. Some sort of salmon Hoover. This is news. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. again, just showing my liberal, dynamite, liberal no. metropolitan <laughs> elites uh, background there. Um, in terms of imports, what have we got here? We import almost all, apparently, of our cod, haddock, and tuna. Yep. Yeah. How much comes from the EU? Proportion. Seventy-five percent. Guess. I'd say. Yeah. I'd say around about that. Over miles out, a third of which comes from the EU. Good heavens! Apparently. What's the rest of it then? Somewhere else. Okay. And we finish with the recommendations. This feature is called. Let's see if I can get it right this week. In the unlikely event this podcast has not proved sufficiently enlightening, or something like that. In the unlikely event this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Let's start with Simon. What have you brought to add to this very long list now? I had a good think about this one, because I was told to. Yeah. That was good. And um, I thought through various academic terms and things like that, and I thought, no, it goes back beyond that. It is a cultural thing for me, well back. It's not particular. The particular politics, obviously, you know, they, they worked out as they are. I really liked, <clears throat> when I was younger, and this you have to be perhaps about, I don't know, 35 onwards to, to know who this person is, a cartoonist, the Daily Express, called Giles. Mm-hmm. And he's, well, he's dead now. He's been dead for more than 20 years. But he, between the late 40s and early 80s, or early 90s, actually, he produced a weekly, well, no, several cartoons a week for the Daily Express. Mm. And the Giles cartoons, which are still available, they come out every year in an annual, which I guess they rerun the old ones now. Yeah. And they portrayed us as, as, as this kind of very sort of... Um, the kind of person you might imagine voting Brexit, this British yeah. family, very patriotic, and, and their um, mix of obsession with weather, um, love for the royalty, deep patriotism, as I say, um, love of, of, of sport and bizarre activities in the rain. And <laughs> yeah, and I think it really captures a kind of a British culture somehow in a very humorous way, which is very, very accurate and, and explains why there's, you know, after all these years, and I see it every time across the channel, 
you know, the Brits are not the same as our continental cousins. We're not better, we're not worse, but we are not the same. Yeah, no, I think that's a brilliant suggestion. That's absolutely, I think you're, you're bang on there, yes. What have you got for us, Christopher? So I thought I'd recommend something that was fish-related. Yes. Um, there was a recent television series called Fishtown, um, which was a series based based around the Scottish town of Peterhead, which, as I think we've already mentioned, is sort of the, one of the biggest fishing ports um, in, in the UK. So it gives you a real sense of how this is a community issue and you know we've we've talked about how important it is for local communities and you really get this sense over this program so um it 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 follows a few skippers out to sea and the sort of things they have to do on a daily basis but it also talks a bit about the life of the community itself which i i i think provides some nice context to uh the fisheries debate that you're having what channel was it on it was on bbc one so you can get it on the iplayer probably if you look it up So, I looked a bit silly there with my lack of knowledge of aquaculture, didn't I? But you do have to uh, catch fish, don't you, even if you, even if they're farmed. But on the flip side, uh, I thought Simon's comment that the um, French and Spanish only deal in grapes and cheese was a bit outrageous, really, wasn't it? I mean, you know, you can't really compare fish and grapes and cheese because you don't grow fish, do you? As I know from the NFU episode of this podcast from a few weeks ago. Still... Fair play to my guests this week. They gave me excellent recommendations. As I said to them at the time, I think possibly the best two recommendations we've had in the sense that sometimes we have one good recommendation and then Anand Menon just recommends something that the UK and Changing Europe have written, uh, which is always good, but not exactly fulfilling the lateral thinking brief. Uh, they were two excellent recommendations. Um, I've got a prize for our, our competition winner. I've got to send that off to him. Uh, he's going to get a mug. So I will get my thinking cap on for what the next competition might be for the next series when that gets underway. Um, very exciting podcast news. If you are listening to this on the day it comes out, that's uh, Friday, April the what, 5th, or indeed the day after on April the 6th, because we're doing a live podcast on April the 7th. Uh, if you listen to this early enough, you can come and see me and Anand and Catherine and a mystery guest recording our podcast live from London on the Sunday morning. Um, if you're listening to it afterwards, just go to your iTunes feed or whatever your podcast provider is and you'll be able to find it because I'm sure it will be online by the time you are listening to this. If you're listening to it after Sunday, that got a bit confusing, didn't it? Um, if you want to get in touch with us, we are uh, at UK and EU on Twitter or UK and EU.ac.uk on the internet. Oh, somebody's drilling somewhere near me. Can you hear that in the background? Uh, my Twitter account, it was a drill. It wasn't some bodily function, just to be clear. Oh, there it goes again. Um, my Twitter handle is at Political Yeti. My website is james-miller.com and you'll find the whole long list of recommendations there. And uh, the music this week has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. (laughs) 